to episode 366 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Andrew Swafford. And joining us today, my friend Tomas Porchall. Tomas, right. thanks for coming on. Thank you, thank you. Uh, today's uh, very honored. It's a, you know, it's a great honor. <laughs> and you know, you actually finished uh, uh, an entire year, you know, worth of. You had three hundred sixty-six, right? So yeah, no, that's the goal now. <laughs> oh, I didn't even, yeah, yeah, I didn't even I think just, about that. Yeah. yeah. Now they have an episode for every day of the year. Ah, okay. So yeah. So if you want to do Please that, do not so you didn't listen miss. to an episode every day of the year. <laughs> <laughs> so people can really stay hooked, right? That's true. Yeah, daily, they, if, daily dose. If you're really committed, you can go for a whole year. <laughs> All right. Um, on today's episode, we'll do movies that we saw this week in part one, and then in part two, we'll be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series from 1967's Point Blank. Um, I do want to direct everybody to the site. We got a new review of O Vigilante for the 1992 film by uh, Oz. Ozoldo Canidias. I don't, I, I don't, you know, unfortunately cannot pronounce that, but, um, he's a Chilean filmmaker. Um, and he was not something that was on my radar, uh, but apparently he's a big figure in the Chilean new wave. Um, and we had a writer who really wanted to write about something from the Chilean new wave. So, you know, go do your homework and, and read that review. Definitely. I think he, I saw that he shared actually, if you want to watch it, it's on YouTube in full. So, you can watch it there. Um, all right, we're going to kick things off with uh, talking a little bit about the new Leos Cara film, uh, Annette, which uh, stars Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. It, it was in theaters. It premiered at Cannes. It was in theaters, um, but it's now... It opened Cannes, it, which is hilarious to imagine considering the way this movie opens. That's true. It opened Cannes... Uh, was in theaters for a while and then it hit streaming it's on amazon prime uh for people with prime but um yeah i yeah i know i know the podcast is we're big fans of holy motors we've talked about that one a gazillion times but um andrew what did you make of annette um (laughs) it's a hard question to answer because my feelings about annette evolved a lot over the course of watching it and over the course of the days since watching it, um, I've felt about every way I feel like you can feel about it um, <laughs> in, in the process. There were definitely long stretches of it where I was very irritated. Um, there were long stretches where I was laughing at it. Um, there was stretches where I was laughing with it. And I feel like the place where I've mostly landed now is that I think it's like, really unique and really neat and really fun and really cool um so i guess i should give people an idea of what annette is even about um it is a musical um the the music in the movie as well as the story for the movie are both written by the band sparks um who i know people are massive massive fans of i don't really know much about Sparks at all. I need to watch that Edgar Wright documentary about them. Yeah, I was going to say, they're having a moment right now because they got that Edgar Wright documentary and then they have this musical. So I don't know why we just like... I don't know. Anyway, Sparks. Missed the boat on Sparks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But the story they have written for this um, concerns these two performers. Um, Adam Driver plays this kind of provocative stand-up comic. He kind of does... um, 
I don't know, crowd work. Uh, and, and what we see in the movie doesn't seem like what an actual stand-up performance would be like. It's it's more just like this weird performance art thing. Um, and then we have Marion Cotillard, who's a, a famous opera singer, and they have this celebrity romance. There's all these interstitials in the movie showing like the, the tabloid news, like E! News or something, reporting on their, their personal life. Um, and they get married. They have a child. That child's name is Annette. Um, the child, Annette, is played by a puppet <laughs> in the movie. And uh, that is just a thing that is not commented on. Uh, but it is it is very... You get like, used to it. it. You get used to it, but it's also impossible to miss. It's not yes. like one of those things in, like American Sniper where they used a, a doll and you're supposed to not notice the doll. You're supposed to notice it's a puppet. Like impossible to not notice the puppet um and i probably shouldn't say any more than that um other than like there are twists and turns along the way um it's kind of like a rise and fall star is born sort of story um but it in in very strange and unpredictable ways there's even some like j-horror stuff um hidden in like the last half of this movie um, I already mentioned and, last time I talked about it that, I mean, there is a scene where Adam Driver is going down on Marion Cotillard and is singing yes. at the same time. Jesse did not I think you watch this know movie that. with me. Multitasking. But she, yeah. <laughs> Jesse refused to watch this movie with me, but she did want me to bring her into the room when that scene happened because she knew that it was happening ahead of time. And I think she was a little disappointed. It only lasts like... Um, it's not long. I don't know. It's like maybe 10 seconds. Yeah. Um, and the way that it's framed is a little underwhelming if you've had it sold to you as like this headline, like this eye-grabbing Yeah, it's, not, a, it's thing, not like you know? erotic. It's just more like he's singing while he's doing that. I mean, it's just... But it is... I think hilarious. It's hilarious. And, and and I think that one of my main takeaways from this movie is that it is absolutely um, not taking itself that seriously. Uh, it is, it, this is not like, I mean, it is like a sophisticated, highbrow, artsy, like cerebral movie, but it's also like very, very silly. Um, one of the reasons why I mentioned that it's funny to imagine that it opened can um, is that there's like this opening dialogue, this narration that plays before the movie actually starts of like somebody addressing an audience of people. And he tells the audience that like, they are not allowed to breathe for the entirety of the show. Uh, and if they have to fart, they need to do it in their head. Um, so like, that's the kind of level <laughs> of humor we're dealing with here a lot of the time. Um, and there's, the movie is like constantly reminding you that you're watching a movie. It's constantly reminding you that like musicals are highly artificial things. Um, like the scene where Adam Driver goes down in Marion Cotillard, um, he is singing a song called We Love Each Other So Much. And one of the only lines in We Love Each Other So Much is just the line, We Love Each Other So Much, repeated over and over and over, um, done in like the most deadpan fashion imaginable. And it seems to be just like playing on the fact that most songs and musicals only exist to like convey a single idea about like a plot point or a character or something um but they like in this musical they don't embellish the idea at all they just like say the idea out loud like there's a there's another scene where uh, adam driver is like traveling around the world and the line is we're traveling around the world we're traveling around the world like <laughs> they just says that um and so 
Um, what kind of clicked for me about halfway through is comparing it to Holy Motors, um, which is doing a similar thing with very different execution. Um, so the basic conceit of Holy Motors is like you're watching this actor character played by Denny Levant, like getting into and out of all of these roles. And he's playing like these little five to 10 minute scenes. And you see him prepare for the scene and you see him get out of the scene. And so, you know, it's fake, but you can't help but get personally invested in the scene. And it's like almost a flex it's showing off like what movies can do you know the the roger ebert quote about movies being machines for empathy like you can't help but uh like emotionally connect to characters on screen even if you know on like every conceivable level that this is just fakery um and i feel like with uh but it's done like very um i don't know um with a, with a great amount of like pizzazz and style in Holy Motors, and this is like so dry, um, and, and and it seems like Leo Kara or however you say his name, it's a fake name. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. It does. It's a meme. There's no right way to say his name. I feel like um, he's like stretching that idea to its limits, right? He's he's he, there's like this meta intro and outro to the movie. Um, that is like, we're not actually watching the movie yet. Um, the, the first song in the movie is called It's Time to Start, or May We Start, I think. Like, can we actually get this movie started now? Um, and then, like, we're watching a musical, which is already kind of like a, an heightened artificial mode of storytelling. Um, we're watching a really weird musical where these songs are, like, so literal and so repetitive. And we're watching these songs being sung by somebody like Adam Driver, who's not really that good of a singer. Um, and you have something like the puppet in the middle where like we're drawing attention to the fact that like you know when babies in movies we're always kind of like doing weird movie magic to like get around them well um, and it's also like it's it, and like you know to your point that it's dry it's also like abrasively going all of this is fake and you're kind of stupid to get so enveloped in it like it, it's it's a, very, it's a very abrasive movie and, and so i think that's a lot of the reason why people don't respond well to it because it's kind of yeah. giving you the finger the entire time for because it's, yeah. it's not only commenting on like the actors and like the whole artifice of art itself but it's also making it's also pointing fingers at like you the audience for getting so in you know engrossed right. by it and I watched it with Michael O'Malley, who this was kind of his ultimate criticism of the movie, that, like, he couldn't tell how seriously the movie wanted him to take the story. Um, because you kind of do end up getting emotionally invested in it. And if you think the, that the movie... The, the final scene's great, yeah. The final scene is really moving, yeah. Uh, and so if you if you think that the movie hates you for getting emotionally invested, I could see that being a disconnect. But I, I see Leo Kara like playing with the the weird um uh gray area and ambiguity between noticing like seeing the strings in a movie and still getting emotionally invested in the movie like i think it's both um yeah no i think so and i think i think he's giving you the finger but he's also going that he, he's like i also like this but i think he's more giving, so one of the comparisons that people have made toward adam driver's character is comparing him to somebody like bo burnham or Hannah Gatsby, who is kind of like these people who are are commenting on <coughs> on like the world in a way that like people really like 
they really get behind it. They really like almost not not like in a cult like fashion, but they really do invest in like what these comedians are saying. You know, you look at like the reception to Bo Burnham's Inside, and people really like are invested in like the concepts around that. Like I see it all the time on TikTok that it's just it's something that people have really grasped onto. And I think he's more he's more commenting on that of like you are this is artifice, and you are literally like making like building your whole life around this thing and it's a fake thing and yeah it's emotionally investing but also it's a fake thing like it like like what like i think that's more what he's getting at i don't think he's like dismissive of the whole thing it's just i think he's more dismissive of people who are um who are are building their whole lives around pop culture figures i guess is a way to describe it yeah, I guess that is also a way to understand the little celebrity culture interstitial news clips as well. Like the way in which these people's lives are not necessarily their own, but being viewed by the larger culture in like this obsessive way. Um, I, I, you know, it's it's one that I was kind of, I was kind of lukewarm. I didn't hate it, but I was lukewarm to it when I saw it. Um, and then, but ever since I've seen it, I have been thinking about it just because I think it does, like... I think it's a movie that you have to understand what it's doing or else and if and if you come at it with how you want to view it or if you come at it with a whole different viewpoint you're it's just going to be completely rejected but if you if you get on the same level as the movie you'll enjoy it and I think that that's difficult for people and that's probably why it has such a violent reaction to it <laughs> yes so uh, there are some really like um, stunning sequences in it though that I think almost anybody would be impressed by like the opening sequence the it's time to start sequence it's like a long tracking shot where we're like watching the band playing and watching all the actors come together and like we're going we're going to the set of the first scene of the movie um is and we also see uh leo Carra in like the uh, the, uh, the booth um like doing sound for the band it's really really neat um there's also a um a, an awesome another warner um that is uh it's like a camera that's circling a conductor uh, the conductor is played by this dude from Big Bang Theory. I don't remember his name. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, the, he's talking to the camera while he's conducting this orchestra, and the camera movement is, like, getting faster and slower based on, the like, the musical um, movements of the orchestra. Um, and, like, it's hard, I think, to explain exactly what it feels like to watch, but... Um, it is it is really like um, I don't know thrilling cinematography and like just a really cool conceit for you know how to convey what is ultimately just like a character talking about themselves to the camera. Yeah, um, um, Tomas, you're gonna say something. No, I just uh, I, 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 you mentioned that it opened Cannes F- Film Festival. Uh, uh, do you did you read anything about the particular reactions of the audience because oh, it, they can? It seemed yeah. like it was pretty negative, like almost uniformly negative. Um, from people who like Leo Carra, um, and for people who were really like on the hype train for the movie on the front end, um, so I don't really know. Um, I don't know what I. <laughs> it's such an odd movie. There's no way to expect this movie, right? So I feel like going in, you are always going to have your expectations. Uh, like ripped away from you because because of what this thing is. It's a it's a ride because like I, I I was kind of the same way with you. I was hating it at times. I was very much enjoying it at times. I was confused by it at times. It like 
it was very much an experience and i i went and saw it i went and saw, uh and i was in a theater just by myself um it was it was cool to see there in a theater there was nobody though. else in there no there was Zero no people there's nobody else in there <laughs> um it, but and so uh so but it, it, it was it was worth seeing like it was a cool movie pandemic to see or not yeah, yeah there was no, nobody. <laughs> i think even if we didn't have a pandemic i can't imagine there being many people in there um but yeah, no, I I liked it. I but it, it's very much like it's you know as we get to the point where do we recommend it? I don't know if I recommend it to people. <laughs> no. If you if you want to watch a movie, a new release that is not going to be like the same old same old experience of like you know the your normal new release rollout. Uh, like this does not fit into any like clearly uh, like it doesn't slot into any genre category um, it's not like any movie you've seen before except maybe kind of holy motors which isn't like any movie you've seen before um it looks really nice um the performances are are weird and ambitious adam driver's really good in it um so like it's yeah, he, it's an experience he likes to ex- extend himself yeah he's good in it yeah yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one fun tidbit. I read an interview with uh, Leo Carra, and they asked him, like, why did you decide to work with Adam Driver after working with Denny Levant for essentially all of your other movies? And he said that what he liked about Adam Driver and what he liked about Denny Levant were the same thing, which is they both look like monkeys. It's <laughs> <laughs> fair. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh. He's yeah. that he's that kind of a guy who is handsome but not really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, Annette, it's on Amazon Prime. If you are interested, uh, it's definitely an experience. And if you have not seen Holy Motors, we I mean we've recommended it a gazillion times. Yeah, go, watch, go Holy watch Holy Motors. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk real briefly about a movie I caught this past week. It's on uh, Criterion Channel now. Um, it's directed by Makio Narusi, uh, Sound of the Mountain from 1954. And this one, mainly I was interested in it because I'm deeply in love with Satsukahara, and Satsukahara was in this movie. And I still love her. And it's, I gotta stop watching movies where people are incredibly rude to Satsukahara <laughs> and don't treat her right because it's just, I gotta stop doing it because I love her so much and it, she's never treated right in any movie. Um, but uh, this one, it, it, it's about a, uh, a family in Japan, um, and you have the Satsukahara and her husband, and then but she lives with her in-laws, the, the mother and the father, um, and they kind of seem, they seem to have a, a solid relationship, like she stays at home with, with them. They're older, but the, the father works. He actually works at whatever, they don't really specify what company or like what his work is but he works at the same place as the son and um she's you know kind of doing a lot of the homework she's uh she's not they've they've talked about how they've had a maid but she's doing a lot of the cooking and the cleaning and just kind of taking care of the family um and it, it 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 becomes clear to the father that the that his son is clearly having an affair and that and so at first you kind of get this whole storyline where he his secretary is somebody who has he knows has been like hanging out with his son and knows who he's having the affair with um and they have like these really tense scenes where he's like questioning the the secretary and she's like fine i'll tell you and then like he ends up like confronting the son and the son is just like you know it's just it's just what it is you know like i uh 
he keeps calling Satsuka Hara's character a child. He's like, she's just a child, you know, which is such a weird way to describe your wife. And so he's like, she's just a child, you know. I just find other way, you know, pretty a much. Child I'm married to. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just like, I, just, I have to go and find other outlets. Um, and then you also have this other storyline where their daughter um, also comes home because she she's having she she also has two kids and she's. Um, kind of pretty much on the outs with her husband and so you kind of have all of these like marital marital strife you have the Satsukahara character and her husband who are kind of you know struggling you have the daughter and her husband who are struggling and she comes and lives with the family and she has like this kind of she clearly feels like she's second fiddle to everybody there you know she's second fiddle to the son she's second fiddle to Satsukahara's character she just feels very um, very much like the redheaded stepchild this, of this family, um, and then you have a lot of the a lot of the familial stuff that you're familiar with with like because this very much feels like an Ozu movie, just without like the stylistic um, flourishes of like an Ozu movie. Um, you get a lot of just kind of like the like how different generations are are kind of uh, uh, approaching like this. You know, you have. The father is just kind of appalled by a lot of the actions of the son. And he should be. His son is a fucking asshole the entire movie. Like, the entire movie, he's just kind of like, yeah, I'm just cheating on her, whatever. Um, but you, but I think it's it's also clear, like, you kind of get into those, like, kind of post-World World War II um, shifting, uh, you know, generations in Japan where you have a much more traditional generation with, like, the father and the mother. You have... Uh, the, the generation with the son and the daughter that's a little bit more lax that they're doing you know he goes out and spends a lot of the night drinking um, uh, you know hanging out with different people the the woman he's seen is like this very metropolitan independent fashion designer woman who um, is living you know with a friend of hers um, and you just kind of have like this kind of this generational strife um, probably the most radical generational gap you can imagine you know japan after the second world war it is with yeah. The opening, yeah, yeah and um the, the the kind of the big wrench that's thrown into it by the end of the movie is you learn that um satsukahara's character is pregnant and she's i guess been kind of talking about having a child for, for a long time but without talking to anybody she learns that she's pregnant and ends up getting an abortion um and pretty much her reasoning for getting an abortion is she just she just doesn't want to have a, a, a kid with this guy um, and by the end of the movie she's kind of, you know she's she's pretty much decided that she just kind of wants to divorce him and, and and get you know get out of this entire relationship but she also has this really um, deep connection with uh, specifically the father where she he really just is somebody that she can kind of confide in she can really trust in um, and it was really yeah. it was a very it was a, you know I'm a giant fan of Ozu um, Narusi very feels very much like he's on the same um, narrative wavelength as, as Ozu he's kind of investigating the and, and, and investigating these generational strifes in like a very subtle way similar to Ozu but he does not have like you know you don't get those tatami shots you don't get like those um, you know the kind of cutaway shots uh, the pillow shots that Ebert calls them um, it's very, it's much more, it's much more um, traditional in that way, you know. But at the same time, it's investigating like these these generational gaps that 
um, are are prevalent in post-war Japan that um, that in kind of do, dealing doing it in a way that Ozu did, where it's much more subtle, it's not as as overt, and it's all about kind of the internal, you know, fighting the internal with the external. Um, but don't you think that I mean I haven't seen the film mm-hmm. that uh, the fact that the there is abortion that she has that the daughter has a strong yeah. relationship with with the father that she's kind of tra- trying to assert herself that this was kind of uh, a little i mean th- th- that wouldn't that be uh, wouldn't that make the film stand out you know and that's what i would think it's i mean it's 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 pretty progressive like in the way it hand because it, it handles the abortion very well i mean it's it's i mean it's not like yeah. the 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 um when the family learns about it, they don't necessarily condemn her. They pretty much kind of go, well, why didn't she talk to us about it? Like, why didn't mm-hmm. she like bring it up? Like, why would she kind of keep that away from us? It's not like it becomes like this. Um, they, they don't cast her out. They, she, she, she makes her own choice to go. I, I, I just don't want to be a part of this relationship. And you kind of have, it's a kind of a frustrating movie because you have that, you have the son who is just, he's very ingrained in like that, um, that kind of shifting salary man, uh, you know, Japanese male, um, kind of that 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 white lifestyle where he's just very focused on um, kind of getting his money and you know living his life the way he wants to live. Like he he has a very American way of doing things. He's very like I'm going to do this the way I want to do it. Um, and, he, and he's and they talk a lot about like the the woman who he's seen talks a lot about like how he's kind of abusive like he's mm. he um he, he'll make her sing even though she doesn't want to sing like um and, and I think a lot of the the turmoil is the father kind of going um the father kind of seeing what his son has become reflecting on like did I do this? Like, did I, was I mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the catalyst, yeah, mm-hmm. the, the responsible for it. And, you know, can I change him? And, and that's, what's kind of frustrating about the movie is he's constantly kind of approaching him about it, but it, it's clear that he doesn't want to change. Like he's actively made this choice to be this way. Um, it's an interesting movie. It's on yeah. Criterion channel. Now. Um, I think if you're a fan of, of, you know, the Ozu. If you're a fan of Ozu movies with Satsukahara, whether it's Late Spring or Tokyo Story or things like that, she this is also one of her great performances. I think it, 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 I always like to see non Ozu Satsukahara movies like this and uh, No Regrets for Our Youth, the Kurosawa film, are kind of interesting. It's interesting to see her in that and in, in those movies without the the Ozu lens. And so um, I'd recommend this one, Sound of the Mountain. It's uh, it's on Criterion. Zach, this is somewhat unrelated, but. I, don't, I guess I've never asked you about this. Have you seen Millennium Actress? I have not. What's the, what's the title? Millennium, Millennium Actress. Actress. Uh, it's an anime film by the late, great Satoshi Kon, and it's um, about Satsukahara. It's like a, a lightly fictionalized and greatly stylized biography of Satsukahara. You should watch it. You'd love it. <laughs> I, that's I'm done. Like, of course I'll watch he, that. He's got his yeah. evening. I love her so much. <laughs> I, I think Satsukahara might be my favorite actress. I love Satsukahara wow. so much. She's such a good actress. Well, she's so subtle with everything. It's amazing. I've got some Japan, Japanese actresses. I'll run them by you for comparison. Okay. Um, Andrew, I toss it over to you. You've been on a whole. This is a completely different field, but uh, it's Muppets. You know how different is it really? We had the That's true. we had the the doll baby, the puppet baby from Annette. 
Um, and we got Muppets. Um, recently, Fathom Events did a screening of um, The Great Muppet Caper, uh, which recently celebrated its 40th anniversary, I think. Uh, and I went to see it kind of on a whim um, and loved it. It was it was so fun, so so enjoyable. Um, and I have never seen like the classic run of Muppet movies, so I have decided to I've taken it upon myself to watch all the Muppet movies in in order. So I've watched three of them, and the the chronology of the Muppet film series kind of has has a couple arcs to it. There's the first three, which are like globe-trotting movies. The first one is about a trip to Hollywood. The second one is about a trip to London. The third one's about a trip to New York. Um, and then after that, they kind of move into adapt, like Muppet adaptations of literary classics. So the things I'm looking forward to are the Muppet Christmas Carol and Muppet Treasure Island. Um, they also did Muppet Wizard of Oz. Um, and then there's like Muppets in Space, which is like off doing its own thing. It's it's not a musical. It's the only one that's not a musical. Um, and then there was the the remake or the reboot movies with uh, Jason Segel, uh, the Muppets and Muppets Most Wanted, um, which I've seen the first of those. Uh, but I wanted to talk about the the little trilogy of like the globe trotting Muppet movies, um, the Muppet movie, Great Muppet Caper, and Muppets Take Manhattan. Um, I wish I could say all of them were good. One of them, unfortunately, was a major, major disappointment for me. But um, the Muppet movie is a lot of fun. It is the movie that um, that Rainbow Connection comes from. The movie basically opens the Rainbow Connection after a very short, um, also kind of uh, um, Annette-esque, uh, it's time to start uh, sequence. Um and, and, like, that is just, like, a Rainbow Connection is, like, such a sincere, beautiful, amazing thing in and of itself. Um, but it is also contained within this this broader story that is also very sincere and sweet. Um, though, ultimately, like, where it ends up landing is it's kind of like a, a Hollywood myth-making thing about, like, you know, how any, you, can, you can go to Hollywood and anybody can make it here. Um, the, but, like, the fun of it is... All the the songs, which are ridiculous and great and catchy, um, all the the personality of all of the Muppets, um, and and the cameos. There's a lot of celebrity cameos in this in these movies, which I think is one of the main draws to the series. Um, I have two favorites in the first movie. One of which is Steve Martin playing a um, like a very non classy waiter. Um, at a at a restaurant that Kermit and Piggy go to, um, but they don't have a frame of reference for what class looks like. So everything that he does, they think is like very sophisticated. Um, he like just peels off uh, the the like the foil on the top of a champagne gl- a bottle and like wads it up and throws it off of a balcony. Um, and then the best one. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I'm worried that I'm spoiling this for people because it was such a great surprise when I saw it, but I can't not talk about it. When he finally gets to, to Hollywood and he and Kermit goes to like a Hollywood movie studio, he's trying to become rich and famous. Um, and he's let into the office of this like big wig Hollywood guy. And the guy's like, he has his chair turned around and you can't see who he is. And then he eventually turns around and it's Orson fucking Wells. <laughs> <laughs> And, and Orson Welles' only line is, he calls his secretary and he says, 
draw up the standard rich and famous contract for Mr. Kermit the Frog, which is just, <laughs> just, just it's so good to hear come out of Orson Welles' mouth. Um, Great Muppet Caper is even funnier than the first Muppet movie. Oh, hold on. Let me back up. There's something I forgot to mention in the first Muppet movie. There's just so many ridiculous things that happen in this movie. One of the ridiculous things that happens is a kaiju version of Animal um, from the Dr. Teeth band. He he takes some sort of uh, serum that makes him grow like 10 times his size, and he uh, he scares off some, some, some bad guys, which is wonderful. I saw somebody... Uh, there's like a podcast uh, recently that like did a, a Q&A show and one of the questions was like what Muppet should fight Godzilla and the answer is obviously Kaiju Animal like there's no there's no other answer to that anyway yeah, we didn't um, we didn't cover that last week in our Godzilla episode unfortunately right right Animal we've already done Godzilla versus King Kong we need Godzilla versus Animal that's the next one in the whole like Adam Wingard Godzilla verse um Great Baba Caper, even funnier. Um, and they it adds a lot of meta stuff uh, that wasn't in the first movie. Like, it opens with um, the, the title sequence or the, the opening credits. And um, Kermit and Fozzie and Gonzo are in this hot air balloon as the, the opening credits are, like, going over the empty space in the sky. And and one of them, I think Gonzo, or uh, Fozzie is like, I wonder if, I hope we don't fall out of this hot air balloon. This is really dangerous. It's really high up here. And Kermit's like, well, we're not gonna, we're not gonna follow this hot air balloon. It's just the opening credits. You know, there's, there's no way anything bad could happen to us this early in the movie. And it's like that kind of humor throughout the whole film. Um, and it's like, God, it's just so like tightly written and funny, like, and clever in a way that I feel like family movies aren't clever anymore. Like it's, it almost never just kind of going for the, the lowest common denominator, like just silly, you know, fart joke humor, uh, to, to use kind of an overused phrase. Um, there's always something like kind of, um, I don't know. Um, just, just smart and witty about it. Um, that, that I feel like is kind of absent from family movies today. Um, and, and I don't really have... Oh, I do have a couple more things to say about it. One of which is that um, this movie involves... And I texted Zach this immediately as it was happening in the theater. I couldn't not text during the movie. Um, this movie involves Charles Grodin falling in love with Miss Piggy. Um, it also involves three... Busby Berkeley style musical numbers using Muppets, one of which is like a million dollar mermaid underwater, like swim choreography sequence with Miss Piggy swimming through all these human figures, which is like amazing. And like you're in Great Love of Caper is specifically, you're like constantly asking, like, how did they do that? Um, there's one scene that people have probably seen in like GIF form of Kermit the Frog riding a bicycle. It's like, where where are the strings? Where's the where's the hand? You know how are they making this happen? Um, in Great Muppet Caper, they do that, and he's riding a bicycle alongside Miss Piggy, and Kermit like gets up on the seat of the bicycle on one foot and is like doing tricks and stuff, um, and then the song culminates in like dozens of Muppets riding bicycles, like all converging onto the same uh, road, and like all of the the like how did they do that synapses in your brain like 
just explode into into like exponential numbers um so it's just like amazing incredible impressive like ah, i would literally i was out. i yeah. was sold at charles groden like falls in love with Miss Piggy. Falls in love with yeah. Miss Piggy. Because because <laughs> really it's it, like you said Charles Grodin and I was like I'll watch that movie. Yes, you should. You should definitely watch it. Um, <laughs> the third one, Muppets Take Manhattan, not very good in my opinion. Um, downright bad. Um, cursed is what I said on Twitter. Um, it's it's like a gritty New York movie. It's like. On one level, I want to get behind it because it's like a class-conscious Muppet movie. It's about, like, Kermit and friends going to New York to try to make a Broadway play. And instead of Orson Welles being there to write up the standard rich and famous contract for them, um, they just, like, hit brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. And they're, like, poor and hungry and can't afford food. And they have to, like, split up and not be friends anymore because they all have to go find, like, awful jobs in various parts of the country. Um, but it's like, it doesn't even really attempt to be funny a lot of the time. It's trying to go for like this really, um, like heavy emotional thing, which doesn't really work for the Muppets. I don't feel like, and when it does try to be funny, um, a lot of the times the humor, uh, it's way too existential for my, for my Muppets. It's too existential for the Muppets. Yes. I, this is too real. I don't want to be thinking about. I was actually watching this the night before payday, uh, and like Jesse and I were like struggling to find something to make for dinner that night because we couldn't afford to go out. Um, so it was it was too real, um, and like when it does try to be funny, a lot of the times the humor is like in bad taste, um, which is not the case in the other Muppet movies that I watched. Like they're always like very um, timeless and smart the way the, the the jokes work. And in this, like a lot of them have to had to do with like kinda rapey, like unwanted sexual advances upon various people. And like there's weird stuff with like uh, racial discrimination towards the rat Muppets um, that like doesn't really land. Um, and the, yeah, have you, do you know, like there's like a dozen yeah. little rat Muppets that all look the same and they're tiny. Um, they work in a restaurant, which is supposed to be, it's like a proto ratatouille. Yeah. It's, it's the rats and um, it's the Swedish chef. Swedish chef is not in the restaurant, but in the show that may be the case. I don't know. Um, um, the way this movie ends is like Kermit and friends getting to actually make the Broadway musical they've been trying to make. And so it's one of those movies that's all about like artists trying to create a work of art and you get to see the work of art. And most of the time um, when movies like this, uh, when, when this is the narrative, you don't end up seeing the work of art because anything that you could see would probably pale in comparison to what you're imagining how great it's going to be is. There's the exception of something like The Red Shoes, for example, where the, the art that you see is like the most amazing part of the movie and it totally uh, lives up to the way that the movie has built it up. And this is the rare case of when they show it and it's awful. Like, I think they're the movie wants me to watch this and like have my heart fluttering with joy at how beautiful the Muppets uh, like dream is. But it's like, if I was watching this musical, I would walk out. This is a really bad musical. It's a really bad way to end this Muppet movie. And it just ends with that musical. Like there's no outside of the text afterwards. Um, And it just left a really bad taste in my mouth. Um, So I'm going to keep watching them. I've heard that uh, Muppet Christmas Carol was like, a lot of people's favorite, people people's really favorite like that Christmas one. Carol movie, um, and a lot of people's favorite Muppet movie. So really stoked for that. 
Um, and I'm ex- I'm excited to get to the 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 reboot movies as well because I remember really liking the Jason Segel one, and I've heard Muppets Most Wanted is even better. Um, but you know, I, just a quick plug for the Muppets. People should watch the Muppet movies. They're good uh, cinema. You know, a lot of people put a lot of hard work into those, and and it, I feel like for the most part, it really pays off. And unfortunately, uh, they're now under the Disney balloon, so you can find all of those on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, all right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back talking point blank and uh, getting shot in a jail after this. <laughs> Cinematary listeners, this is your favorite Filipino podcaster, Jessica Carr. I'm here to let you know about a couple of things that Cinematary offers that you might not know about. First, if you're a fan of what Cinematary is doing, please consider joining us on Patreon. Remember when we weren't clamoring for your dollars? Well, now we're just clamoring for five of your dollars. So please help us and donate to our Patreon, and then you'll get exclusive content from our staff, including our film theory and chill series where a panel takes a piece of theory each month and deconstructs it before diving into whatever topic is on their mind from the past week. The $5 each month is investment in the website and the podcast, and it goes solely to paying our writers for the reviews each week. So please consider doing it. It's only $5. If you missed an episode of Cinematary or a piece of writing we've had, you should consider signing up for our free newsletter. Each Sunday, we send out a note with the latest podcast episode, piece of Patreon content, and the last two reviews that we've written at Cinematary.com. It's perfect for those of you who are interested in what's happening, and it makes sure that you don't miss a single Cinematary review. Finally, the easiest thing that you can do to help us is to please, please give us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever else you're using to listen to the show. This helps us get more eyeballs and ears on the podcast and the website, and it helps the people know about Cinematary, which is really what we're here for. So to recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and give us a rating or review. We would really appreciate if you could do these things. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show.
Alright, and we're back with part two of episode 366 of Cinematary. In this part, we'll be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series with 1967's Point Blank, just real quickly, um, directed by John Borman from a script by Alexander Jacobs and David and Rafe Newhouse. Uh, the film stars Lee Marvin, Angie Dickinson, John Vernon, and Keenan Wynn. Um, the synopsis, a ruthless crook, Walter Walker, is betrayed by his partner, Mal Reese, who leaves him for dead on Alcatraz Island. Having survived, Walker returns years later to get revenge. He gets his first lead when a mysterious man tells him that Reese is now part of a vast criminal organization and dating Walker's wife's sister, Chris. But after contacting Chris, Walker discovers that, the, that in the truth, she loathes uh, Reese and is willing to get him, help him get justice. Um... Tomas, I'm going to start with you because I know this is something that you've taught in your classes. And um, I mean, it's, you pointed out to me that, that you love this film. And so I'm curious to kind of start with your history with Point Blank and, and I guess why it's it's a movie that you teach to students uh, to kind of teach them about the history of movies. Well, uh, before we uh, got on air, you know, I mentioned that uh, uh, I uh, use that film because uh, it has some incredibly remarkable illustrations of uh, creative, very innovative editing, uh, of uh, wonderful mise-en-scene uh, mm-hmm. transitions. It's just, it's just so uh, brilliantly made, you know, uh, um, and and it's and and it's especially impressive since. Uh, this was um, put out by Metro Golden Mayors, yeah. uh, by a major studio, and um, and it it it's it's a miracle of a film, you know, um, given the time. Even though Hollywood was already changing, you know, we are talking about 1967. Yeah, and and it's you know in a way, in many ways, it's a it's a kind of a pioneer film. But but I just couldn't believe when I watched it first time that. A film like that was made in Hollywood. That that yeah. it, it got it got released. You know that it got uh, approved. That it wasn't uh, shelved. You know, uh, yeah. or, or simply, uh, you know, kind of. Um, um, <laughs> Kind well, of, kind of like uh, you know, uh, corrupted or yeah, or, 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 or te- main, uh, mainstreamed. You know? Well, that was the first thing that I mentioned to you when you came over. Is like the, the the thing that impressed me about the movie the most is like it's just incredible to me over anything. I mean, I liked it a lot, but it's just incredible to me over anything that a major studio put this out, like a Hollywood studio put this movie out. Because I couldn't imagine today something as like strange. And wild as this movie being put out by a major studio, much less like an independent studio, you know. And so it's just it's incredible to me that MGM put this out. Yeah, and what uh, you know, because I was uh, curious about the the circumstances of its of its production and and release, mm-hmm. and you know what what kind of uh, helped that film. Uh, have that film uh, become a reality mm-hmm. is is that uh, first of all there was uh, the, the 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 there was a Lee Marvin mm-hmm. and the, the star of the film who really believed in it who uh, 
also uh, had a lot of faith in John Borman, mm -hmm. who at the time was uh, was a was a, was a, just a just a kind of a um, um, you know. Um, Really, really. Is he a journeyman? Is that is that an appropriate word to call John Burke? Yeah, Dorman I mean, he, he was he was not uh, yeah, he was not uh, uh, not just well known. He he was just at the beginning of his career. Yeah, and uh, he had some uh, uh, some some film. I forget, like uh, catch catch us if you can, which mm -hmm. was about some rock band, and it was kind of trying to imitate the Beatles document mm -hmm. documentary. Um, uh, but but he didn't have much to his credit, you mm -hmm. know, and and yet um, uh, whoever uh, uh, noticed him in England uh, arranged for him to 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 come to Hollywood and and make that uh, a film point blank. Mm -hmm. This was his first American film. This was his first film in color, mm -hmm. and uh, to have that trust. And then obviously he clicked with Lee Marvin, and. Uh, uh, Lee Marvin kind of protected that film, and Lee Marvin also, uh, uh, you know, kind of put his foot down in uh, in his in his uh, uh, kind of dealings uh, uh, relationship with the with the studio executive, and and so so um, I should mention one more name. There was there was this. Uh, one of the big bosses at Metro Golden Mayer, who was responsible for the, you know, for the final approval of the films and, and especially editing of the films, mm -hmm. uh, and her name was Margaret Booth, mm -hmm. and, and uh, during the, what do you call it, like the, the, um, the final the nice street sweeper, button. yeah, the street sweeper. <laughs> am I in, in, in uh, am I in trouble with the car, on your side? No, no, you're okay. good. Yeah, <laughs> wanted to run and repark it. No, but but she uh, she was there when you know they have the like the uh, the final rushes, you know, and they uh, they watch the 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 the, the final product mm -hmm. uh, together with the studio executive, and, and their reaction was, you know, they were puzzled. They 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 didn't know what to what to do with it. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to uh, kind of put their Put their put their name on it, you know, and they wanted to uh, uh, make a lot of changes. And she stood up and said that if anybody tempers with that film, even in you know, she liked it so much, you know, mm -hmm. and and she was she was kind of uh, another person that uh, made that film happen. You know? Yeah, and, yeah. So. I, I think I I just noticed from like doing some some cursory research that it was that. Um, Lee Marvin was very was very much like whatever John Borman wants to do. That's like that's what we're gonna yeah, do. Yeah, so yeah, he had the Borman was very end. Yeah, I mean that's what Borman was very because he's like this is literally my first American movie and I'm mm -hmm. getting Final Cut. I'm getting all this stuff. You know, yeah. he's pretty much getting a, you know treatment that a you know a John Ford or a someone George really Ford or something yeah. like that. Yeah, would be getting um, on his first American movie. Uh, Andrew, what did I know that you'd seen this uh, relatively recently? I mean, what, what was your impression of Point Blank? I should give a caveat that 
I have not watched this like in the last couple days. I watched it about a week and a half ago. Uh, I watched it at Central Cinema here in Knoxville because they just happened to be showing it uh, a week and a wow. half before. Um, I am envious, you know, yeah. that you had it on the big screen. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, a friend of the show, Nick Hinker, um, who was one of the people who uh, owns and runs Central Cinema. This is one of his favorite movies. And they were doing like a staff picks series. And so this was his staff pick. So thank you, Nick, for showing this movie. Um, and I went to see it really not knowing anything about it. So I, I, I guess I went in similarly to what a lot of audiences in 1967 or like studio execs sitting down to watch this movie for the first time felt because like all I knew about it was that people liked it. Uh, but based on the synopsis, you know, all I could tell was that like, it's a, it's a crime movie. It's a revenge movie. I was kind of expecting something a little bit more boilerplate. Um, if not, um, like particularly well done, um, but I was shocked. I was I was so surprised at what this movie ended up being. Like um, right at the beginning, it kind of drops you into um, like this really brutal death scene. Uh, you're very much in media rest. You don't really know who anybody is or what's going on. Uh, but there's just like so much chaos in the editing and the sound design and stuff like that. Um, and then and as the movie kind of unfolds over the next like 10, 15 minutes, like you're slowly putting the puzzle pieces together of like who these people are how they relate to each other. Um, and it proceeds to be this weird, like surrealist dream crime film. Almost. Yeah. Uh, where, I mean, that, that, yeah. that is, a, that is an argument to make that, that it may not, the whole film may, may have been just, or may be seen as a kind of a flash forward almost, uh, the, the kind of a fantasy oh, like of, a, um, of, 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 of being of, of, you know, carrying out those that revenge. You know, uh, um, you know, uh, kind of um, um, getting satisfied. You know, getting back at uh, for being betrayed and double crossed. Yeah. So I guess it would be like uh, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. Exactly. If you know the it. Ambrose right. Bierce story. Yeah. yeah exactly. I, I hadn't considered that, but I. I mean, the re- the movie is so strange and like living in this strange level of reality that I could totally see that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are so many indications, you know, that uh, to support that uh, that kind of interpretation. But then there is probably not enough. It's just kind of thrown in to um, you know to make uh, our engagement kind of a little more complex. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, complex engagement, I think, is a good way to put it because like you're having to engage with the movie on a couple different levels at once a lot of the time. Like you'll be hearing the audio of one scene while you're looking at the video of another scene and you're having to like separate these things in your head. Yeah, there's that, that, a lot of that, yeah. There is, there is that, well, it's, it's dissonance, you know, because it's, it's, it's the asynchronous sound and image, you know, and yeah, yeah and, the, and, and just the fragmentation of of uh, uh, of the narrative of you know of the of the continuity, uh, so many gaps in there you know that you know we are asked to fill in mm-hmm. and we may try and succeed but maybe with, with an effort or with with some yeah. uh, reservations. <laughs> well, it's one of those movies that like you could you could sit there you know you could take the cinema sins like like 
fine tooth comb to it, but you're just like, that's so boring to do. Like it's mm-hmm. like it's way more fun to just experience it and just like live in whatever the hell world it wants you to live in. Yeah, because yeah. there's just something so like hypnotic about all of it. That. Is, yeah, hypnotic is a is a is a great. I mean, consider the music. You know, even the yeah. music. The music is is uh, there is this jazz kind of melancholy uh, score, but then there is also that kind of uh, wistful kind of uh, plaintive vocal uh, uh, part to it that kind of suggests this this kind of regret you know and the impossibility of 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 the of that reality we are seeing Mm -hmm. uh, or or the kind of futility of that revenge you know yeah Uh, yeah there is something very futile about it and in lee marvin's performance too once you get to about the halfway point in the movie he looks like a dead man like he's just he's just walking like staggering around from scene to scene um woodenly um like no no emotion whatsoever but like in a great way right he's not failing as an actor he is he's so good at it Eating so yeah, well as an actor in those moments, and like you're you're asking the question like, not only is this worth it, which is all, almost always a question in revenge movies, but like, what are what are you even getting out of this? Like, what do you want right now, man? Uh, well, it's a, I mean, so, I mean, literally the one. What, what's the, the self reflect? The, the one character yeah. asked him that. He's like, what do you like? Like, if you get the money, like, what are you gonna do with it? Like, yeah. you, mm-hmm. like yeah. you clearly have no plan. Like, you're just doing this to do it well the money is something that something concrete that he's after but it's really it's about it's about uh, you know uh, revenging or avenging the betrayal you know like uh, the money is secondary because at the end at the end we have this kind of a circular structure he's back at Alcatraz the money (laughs) is there he is not coming out of the dark (laughs) to claim it you know Mm -hmm. he is retreating to where he was Mm-hmm. When the film started, you know, which supports that interpretation, it may have been a dream. And then, uh, in the last, very, very last scene of the film, I mean, it's, it's really just a, a kind of an establishing shot. Mm-hmm. We see the island, you know, of mm-hmm. Alcatraz from a distance, as if we kind of moved away mm-hmm. and left him there. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. This is like, this is the movie. But, but uh, to your point, that you know, the beginning, the beginning is stunning because. Um, it starts with a shot, you know? Mm-hmm. It starts with a shot, so it's actually a shot, you know? Mm-hmm. The, the opening shot is a shot, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a gunshot. Uh, that will be then recurrent, you know, kind of reminding us mm-hmm. that, you know, of, of, his, of his condition, of what happened to him. Mm-hmm. But because it's, it's, it's in the dark, we don't see anything, so it's just an auditory shot, so to speak. And then we go into that, you know, what I loved about that, because it's a pre-credit sequence. Mm-hmm. We, have, we have five, basically in the course of five minutes, the film brilliantly tells us all we need to know for our essential backstory, mm-hmm. that that there was, they got they got together with mm-hmm. that with that Mao because he was in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, he asked him to trust him that he was his friend, mm-hmm. and that we find out what the deal was. Mm-hmm. We find out 
uh, what uh, uh, what the plan is. Mm -hmm. Then we see it executed, and then we see uh, his betrayal. Mm -hmm. And it's all in five minutes, but we get to know so much about the car. It's psychologically already rich. We are already invested before the credits even start. And that could be yeah. a full movie in another movie, right? Yeah, you're right. In, you know, if in other, in other people's hands, you know, in some, you know, craftsman, not, 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 not a master like Borman, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, this could be <laughs> a TV series, right? Well, it's, yeah. it's so effective, you know, it reminds me, uh, I think a modern example of that would be the opening sequence of, of the Wachowski sisters' uh, Speed Racer, <laughs> which also, like, captures this whole world of everything that kind of sets everything up. But in a in a span of like ten to fifteen minutes, this one though, and I think what's so impressive about it is just the the way it edits. Like it's everything. It never feels like you're going back. Like you're going back and forward, but it never feels like you're going back. Everything no, is always. Is, yeah. You're always moving forward. You're moving forward the, the way in that your it, understanding of the movie, if nothing else. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. Like like it's just like the way it is progressive. You're right. Yeah, yeah. What the way it's edited is so like it's so in line with the narrative that it's just. It's incredible because you're going back and forward in terms of time, but at the same time you're also moving forward in what you need to know and what yeah. is happening. And, and it's never flashy. It's always it's always meaningful. It, there is a purpose to it, you know. It, it's 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 justified. It's not just to show off. Yeah. No, it's. I, I think you know there there are some uh, some editing flourishes that you could say are like kind of like trying to show off. You know, like I I think of a lot of the match cuts. Like you have that match cut where Walker um, uh, uh, gets to Carter and he's like talking to Carter and then it has like a match cut where Carter kind of like turns around and it, the, the, you know it goes from him where Walker's found him to him in the office where he's yelling at the other people like mm -hmm. in the organization um, it's you know it's not a it's that not a, wasn't as effective yeah yeah but it, but it wasn't like a flashy match cut like to you know in the in the vein of like Lawrence of Arabia or 2001 but it was so effective because you immediately went from yeah, I t you know, Walker's talking to him here to, you know, it, it moves on to the, we have to get rid of this guy. Mm -hmm. And it does it, you know, it does it so, it, it cuts out just all the so, fat. So abrupt. It cuts yeah. it out all the fat. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so yeah, lean. Yeah. Very lean, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of another match cut, which I, which I admired was, you know, he's, um, uh, you know, he was to pick up the money there uh, and, and he obviously took uh, Carter with him. Mm -hmm. um, and Carter gets shot, and you know it's in that drain. You know there, the, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he obviously know, knows that there was no money, just paper. He lets you know there is the the close up of the uh, of the water. Mm -hmm. He lets that money flow down that drain, mm -hmm. and then it cuts to another water, which turns out to be the swimming pool water. Mm -hmm. And we have a close up of hands where. Uh, uh, where a walker uh, mm -hmm. lets uh, uh, shares uh, shares a bullet mm -hmm. and a wallet bullet that Carter was shot with, mm -hmm. and uh, and the wallet that that he found on Carter he shares that with uh, his uh, you know kind of enabler or the contact, guide yeah. the con the contact that but only then we find out that. After first we see the water and we're just like very disoriented, and then we find out first of all that it's a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. Then we find out that 
they are actually during the conversation we find out that they're actually at the you know the at the place the right where where that belongs to Brewster, which is the next guy he's gonna go after, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so so it's just it's just uh, you know and and because we cut from water to water, you know yeah. those waters are different, you know that they they are waters but they have very different connotations. Another example that kind of speaks to the economy of the film would be the sequence where. He's gone back to his partner after getting out of jail, his romantic partner and his partner in crime, and she commits suicide. And he goes in the room and sees her dead on the bed, leaves, closes the door, and then later opens the door again and it's empty. And like time has passed. She's she's just been her body has been moved out, but there's no real acknowledgement of that in the scene. You just have to kind of put that together in your head. Except right? that later we see him we see him at her uh, at her um, gravesite. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, later. But you're right. In the later, moment, yeah. yeah. But like in the moment, the movie oh. is so the movie is so strange. I'm like, <laughs> did she disappear? Is yeah, there magic in this movie? The is this a David Lynch movie? Bomb? What's going on? Who took on? care of the furniture? <laughs> the furniture is gone. Yeah. <laughs> How much right. time has passed? There's a cat in there now. What's the significance <laughs> but, of know, the cat? In that, in, yeah. when she's waiting for that for that guy who delivers money monthly, right? Yeah, yeah. Because that's that's the justification for him, uh, you know, hanging out at that apartment at mm-hmm. that condo. I mean, there is this moment. The apartment is already uh, without furniture, and you know he just gets gets kind of uh, get, kind of uh, feels compelled to open the blinds, mm-hmm. and the blinds have a screen door, and through that screen door he's kind of seen, um, kind of blurred, mm-hmm. comes into focus, and on the other side through that screen door he sees no other than. <laughs> Who turns out to be that Fairfax, you know, yeah. the, that that handler of his, you know, that 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 kind of guide. I don't know how to call him. Yeah, and the guy's just there. And what's remarkable about that guy is that he's nameless, really. I think mm-hmm. to to Walker, he's nameless, and and he just kind of ev- he he he. He's tracking him. And he's that, always around. He's always around, and he always has some new instructions or some approval, and he's just kind of guiding him along in his journey of revenge. But but he's very often they are they are he's alone. They are alone when they talk to each other. There is except on the boat on that mm-hmm. ferry. There is nobody else. So. That kind of, you know, I mean, some, I read, I think that uh, Zoderberg in the conversation on the Blu-ray, um, on the commentary, he, he suggests that, that that Fairfax, that character, because he appears out of somewhere on that ferry, you know, with the instructions how to, how to start his, his, his um, you know, uh, his, his revenge, you know. Yeah. Uh, we, we, you know, he's there, he's there on, on that... On that, he compared him to an apparition. You know, it's mm-hmm. like yeah, that. There, you know, that that kind of also supports the the possible idea that it's all yeah kind of dreamlike. Yeah, it's it's interesting that's because I I read in notes you know Soderbergh talking about this mm-hmm. movie. It's interesting that Steven Soderbergh is like obsessed with this because yes, you, yes. you can very much feel a lot of his touches just in the way he edits Absolutely. things and he moves scenes like in the way that this movie operates. I I also think that what's interesting about this movie is it kind of is operating on like these 
this kind of teetering level between like the kind of classic film noir, mm-hmm. but it, also a noir that's uh, that's infused with like new Hollywood and as you say, like kind of this 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 changing of the guard in terms of like how studio movies are made. Yeah, um, that is that is to- that is you know I mean it's in color right, so it's not noir. But the the theme, the character, are straight from film noir. There is some play with the shadows and sh- and you know and the kind of yeah uh, chiaroscuro and all that. And, uh, well, and, and and Soderbergh compares the Lee Marvin character to like a Humphrey Bogart character. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, and there is also an influence of the French uh, Nouvelle Vague. You know, the the, the new wave. There is there is that too because. There is a lot of modernism there, and the 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 colors, um, and and you know because a lot of scenes are, are, are kind of specifically in you know kind of unified by a certain color tone. You know? Yeah, there's the there a moment where he is looking at those binoculars on the street that's like this bold yellow and the woman who's with him is also wearing a yellow shirt that's yeah, exactly and she's the same in yellow, color. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's got absolutely. It's like the colors are warming up as we are getting closer to mm. they get redder. You know, they were just kind of silvery and metallic at the beginning. Um yeah, it's. I mean, there's just so much to admire, you know. I mean, after rewatching it, I feel like yeah, I'm retired. But if I were to go back to teaching, I could spend a week, you know. I mean, easily five to ten hours on that, you know, on analyzing it, just, just, just uh, kind of appreciating the the um, the artistry. Yeah. Well, I I, th- I think you know, kind of going back to the editing, like there's, it. To me, it speaks to like this is like the like the the pure like almost the pure form of like movie making. Like most movies should incorporate like this type of editing, where the editing is informing the story, the character, the mood. Like all the like like we've talked about, the, all of the editing involved in the film is to you know propel things forward and and you know evoke some sort of feeling from what the characters are doing, from what the narrative's trying to do. Um, and I think that, I feel like a lot of uh, modern directors get very, like they get kind of caught up in like the flashiness of it. They go, oh, we see, like they see the cuts and they see that and they, they think, oh, like I, like I want to do that. This is the, my opportunity. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. it, well, it's more of just like an aesthetic choice. It's like, this is, mm-hmm. this will look cool. And yeah. I think, I think, you know, somebody like Steven Soderbergh understands that no, like it's supposed to inform it's supposed to propel the narrative, the characters, everything forward. It's supposed to, it's supposed to all work together. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of, a, you know, as like, a teaching, yeah, yeah. as like a teaching device, it works because it's it's teaching you that, like, this is how you're supposed to make a movie. Like, it's supposed to, the editing is supposed to be in tandem with everything else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, it's uh, you know, and you have. Uh, um, Borman, you know, who then goes to make Deliverance and Excalibur. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and I didn't realize that this, so this movie comes out and it's, um, and Borman, you know, they started working on it the same year that Lee, Mar- uh, Lee Marvin is doing Dirty Dozen. Yeah, it's the um, same, yeah, yeah. Which are just kind of two stark, very different films, yeah. Two, two very starkly different, like, uh, 
characters, you know, because yeah. they are both action films in a way. But, yeah, but, but the also, characters. but also like two different movies that are kind of are 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 looking at America in two like vastly different ways. Like there's something about like the um, the character of Walker and just like the you know i think that you can you can read a lot into like the uncertainty of like his character and like trying to piece together things uh in america in like the late 60s um while in dirty dozen like you have like this kind of revisionist world war ii fantasy um and he's kind of very much like shepherding that as like the as like the 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 leader of that you know it's i think it's i think it's too different like it's it's interesting to him especially when you also incorporate his character in like liberty valance of like these three different male uh personas in a you know shifting america yeah well you know it's it's i i never get tired of this film you know i mean uh i just realized that you know, after after, thanks to you, uh, for for kind of letting me know that you're gonna be discussing it because now I feel like you know I'm feel I'm feel compelled to uh, take a little more time with it and break it down, write something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, do you feel I, I kind of do we? Do we feel like this movie does get like the recognition and like the the the, the study that it, it kind of deserves? Because I'm because I'm like I, I I knew of this movie, but I I don't think I felt I, I I don't feel like it's it's one that is consistently brought up as no, like no you it's ha- not you know it's not it's not a it's not people don't have posters of it like I don't no. I, or maybe I'm just kind of missing it I don't know no, no it's and I mean I consider it a classic. Mm-hmm. And it got uh, introduced into the registry, whatever they call it, like the motion pictures, you know, mm-hmm. when, when it's considered, uh, you know, a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just the general public, it, it didn't, it didn't uh, uh, go well in theaters. That's what I would be wondering. Yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, uh, it's, it's, for the, it's for the aficionados, you know. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, like I said, I've I've heard of it through people liking it, uh, but the people that I've heard of that I've heard like it a lot are people who are like several layers deep in their <laughs> right, journey right. of film. You know, it's not something no, that you go no. to immediately when you're trying to watch all no. the big movies. Yeah, and, that, and that, that's I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at with my question is it it, it seems like one that I feel like should be um, more canonical than I guess maybe I feel like it is like it's not something that I'm seeing on like the AFI lists or, or like high on You're the right. AFI You're list right. or the or the sight and sound list or things like that you know it's I, I like I think in terms of just, you know just the filmmaking it should that be it oh, should be considered much there. more you're right yeah yeah I agree um but yeah I mean I, I don't know maybe I I agree that it's just one of those that's more people people have to you have to understand the parts um you have to understand the parts a little bit more which you know i I was having a a, a discussion with somebody recently about this with like citizen kane where citizen kane like has this um you know it's it kind of has this mysticism to it where it's like this it's the perfect movie it's the greatest movie of all time 
and I was telling that, and, and she was going, you know, I don't dislike the movie, but it had so much fanfare, you know, attached to it that, like, when I finally watched it, I was like, well, this isn't, I don't think this is the greatest movie of all time. And I'm like, I mean, it's, pro- it's probably not, but at the same time, it's an insanely impressive movie, and it's an insanely entertaining movie. Like, it's a great mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. It just has, like, that kind of perception attached to it that, like, you go in expecting the number one thing ever when you watch it. And I think... Um, I'm- yeah, I'm kind of. It's it, it. What you bring up is actually could apply to uh, to Point Blank because uh, the reason we are, you know, we put uh, Citizen Kane, you know, on such on such a pedestal mm-hmm. is that it introduced a lot of uh, uh, you know a lot of kind of. Uh, Cinema techniques, you know. It's a lot of techniques. Yeah, yeah. It's a and, lot of, and, yeah. and all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, devices, uh, and it it it's it's very very um, creatively woven into the narrative. You know? Yeah. But that could also apply to. I mean, this the the point blank in 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 a different you know twenty years later or so deserves the same kind of uh, when was. Uh, Citizen Kane was it like forty-one? Uh, forty-one. You're right. So, more, more than twenty years. But 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 Point Blank is is using a lot of you know those kind of uh, uh, again techniques you know touches uh, all sorts of uh, cinematic tricks you know uh, uh, with the same you know I mean in. In the same, it's kind of in in that same creative way yeah. for which it doesn't get the credit. It's it's innovative, you know, and very radical for its time, you know, and yeah. that's what it doesn't, uh, you know, it, it's not acknowledged. No, I wonder if the the point you were getting at, Zach, is like because this movie isn't doesn't have that canonical mystical status, we can come to it and be wowed. Um, but if we go when we go to Citizen Kane. We're, we've we, there's all this reputation, there's all this baggage attached to it, and you can't see it divorced from that, right? No, no, you're right. Yeah, this I, this film is definitely, you know, kind of still open for for people to get wild by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I think that's kind of my overall point is like that's what's that's what's really um, gratifying about like watching this is that you get to see something that I think is really radical and really. Um, technically um, just just incredible to watch um, that kind of feels like it's a little bit hidden like you know like like I say like I'll I'll, I'll tell people to watch Citizen Kane because I think it's incredibly uh, fun you know it's, it's an incredibly entertaining movie to watch even without the superlatives mm-hmm. um, but it's going to be it's going to be a tough sell for somebody who's really not that invested in, in movies because they're going to be like well this is supposed to be the greatest movie of all time you know that's what everybody says and so I think I think the well, point what point, did you expect yeah right, exactly. with the greatest well it's it's just you cannot live up to that <laughs> no you can't and it's just yeah. you know it's so, so I think I think that that's you know point that's blank. a curse on citizen Kane it is but I think that that, that point blank kind of has the the luxury mm-hmm. of being you know you would like for it to be getting more recognition but it also has that luxury of not getting the recognition well I like what Andrew said it's like this is this is uh, the, the the kind of the pleasure, the, the, uh, you know, the, the satisfaction uh, of watching that film is that 
you know you make your own discovery there you know? which which honestly you know in the in like the 60s 50s and 60s was what people were doing with citizen kane because citizen kane was i mean it had it had a lot of Sorry, I got I got on a whole Citizen Kane. I just read that <laughs> Eldon gave me that book on Citizen Kane, so oh, I just oh. read about the production of Citizen Kane, and so I'm just like, oh, so you finally you finally found the he, book. He got he got me the book, and I'm just like enraptured by like the production of Citizen Kane. But it was really interesting because it, you know, it it really you know it, it came out in theaters. It had the whole publicity run because Hirsch was trying to kill it, um, and it you know was nominated for Oscars, and so all that stuff happens. But then it just kind of goes away. And it just disappears because RKO goes down. Orson Welles kind of goes down. It just disappears, and then it gets re- you know people find it like in the fifties and sixties. You have um, you know this revival of it. People start really appreciating it. Pauline Kael's ripping Orson Welles in the New Yorker. Like it, it took you know it's also a movie that people discovered and really started evangelizing about it's not like you know from day one it was Absolutely the best not. movie of yeah, all right. time yeah, yeah. which i think is interesting yeah yeah and that, that, it, it's the obviously with the with much less critical attention but this is the kind of a uh, yeah you know the the the, the sort of a arch that or arc yeah, that that uh, we follow with uh, with the point with point blank yeah um, as we kind of wind down, any any final thoughts on Point Blank? I have two quick things that I just things that I liked about the movie that we didn't get a chance to talk about. One is like the way in which the violence is handled; it's really brutal, uh, shockingly yeah, it's, brutal, it's su- surprisingly uh, the, surprisingly convincing. You know, yes. I mean, uh, yeah, the scene yeah. that stands out to me the most when I'm thinking back on the the violence in the movie is the the used car scene where he gets in the car with the car salesman and just drives him under a bridge and just like bashes the car against a column uh, over and over and over again and then the guy gets out of the car and he keeps beating him up um, just, and then he cannot yeah. close the door there is a little comic relief oh yes the door the doesn't door. close all the way anymore <laughs> by the way I'm gonna quickly interject so 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 Marvin uh, was the driver there is there are no stuntmen here mm. they really banged up that car uh, what's amazing is that they repaired that car, put it back. Oh together. my gosh! <laughs> I don't know how oh and gosh. why. Um, the other thing that I like about it is how that in the once you get to like the third act, it kind of becomes this weird Kafka-esque story about like corporate culture and how. Like there's the the buck doesn't stop anywhere. Like you can't you can't find a guy who can do the thing that you need him to do because there's always somebody higher up. Um, it mm-hmm. reminded and me of like nobody has the authority, nobody yet has to, the authority. to pay him there, the money. There's no money anywhere. You can't <laughs> don't ask for your payment because you're not yeah. going to get it. I've heard I've seen people on Letterboxd say that it's I think it was maybe Nadine who said this. Um, it's like trying to get paid as a freelancer. Like, I just want my money. Give me my money. Um, and, like, what it reminded me of is, like, I just went through this, like, two-month-long saga of trying to get my my internet service provider to fix my internet. And it was just, like, constant calling of customer service and, like, constant, like, I need another mechanic to come to my house, another mechanic. I need to, like, jump through this hoop and that hoop and buy this thing and that thing. And I, like, I felt like this guy in Point Break. I'm just ready to kill somebody. Like, just somebody, tell me the person I need to kill to make my internet work. I will do it. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew's in a car under a bridge with the Xfinity <laughs> guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just, like, a... <laughs> 
we can all relate to it. It's like <laughs> we are ready to explode. <laughs> Uh, well, that's that's what that's what's so funny about that scene when he's like at Brewster's house because he Brewster's just going like n- like I don't have the money. Fairfax is not going to give you the money. Like nobody like I don't know why you want this money. He's just like, so I'm going to need you to pay me the money. He's like, I don't have the money. And he's just like, yeah, but I'm going to need you to give me the money. He eventually shoots, I think, the phone. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Because so he keeps like explain. He keeps explaining to him, like relatively logically, like this is why we can't give you the money. And Lee Marvin just continues to go, like, I just, I just want the money. Like, he's like, well, can we give you this? And he's like, no, I just want the money. Like that's. <laughs> Um, oh, man. Yeah. Well, well, you know, if you've been convinced after this conversation to watch Point Blank, it's actually on HBO Max at the moment. So also, I can throw in that uh, if you have fifteen bucks, uh, invest it in a Blu-ray edition from two thousand fourteen, because you have uh, an entire commentary th- going through the whole film between between Zoderberg, and it, it's just so sweet, and John Borman, who already then was in his early 80s he's almost 90 now and he's so lucid you know it's just it's just uh, well and, and Soderbergh's the best to listen to talk about movies yeah, like the yeah. dude's so smart so that 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 commentary is worth the mm. blu-ray nice cover too <laughs> exactly. yeah oh yeah yeah um all right well that will wrap up this episode of cinematary you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on twitter and instagram at handle at cinematary and on letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary where you post all the episode, all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Uh, thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash cinematary. Thank you to Cam, Chad Newsom, Christina Daughtry, Corey Willingham, Harry Eskin, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Uh, next week, we will be continuing Young Critics Watch Old Movies with 1969's The Color of Pomegranates because uh, the 60s are getting weird over here on Cinematary. So... Uh, <laughs> And uh, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, but Andrew and I will be at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, in the, in the coming weeks. So uh, be looking for stuff on the Twitter account and stuff and other social media accounts of us reporting from Toronto. It's going to be fun. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Now you got me hooked. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the goal. That's, that's the goal. That was the reason. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.